This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by David Berea, Democratic nominee for the United States Senate in Mississippi. Thanks for coming on, David. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So what really stood out to me about your campaign is that in traditionally red districts and states, we usually see Democrats shying away from their party, even moving to the right in terms of policy and rhetoric, but you are not doing so. Why is that? And why do you think you as a Democrat have a chance to win a statewide race in your state? Well, first of all, I, you know, I have uh, watched other candidates run and they've run what I would call uh, Republican light instead of running as real Democrats. And I don't think that that has uh, been successful for them. And in running that way, they have failed to excite the Democratic base in a way that uh, they need for folks to to get excited and volunteer and spread the word, be evangelical about the campaigns and to excite people enough to get off the couch and go vote. So um, not only am I running a campaign that is authentic because it it is me, uh, but people are responding and Folks who are listening should know that President Obama got about 545,000 votes in Mississippi in 2012. So we know that there are at least that many people who will come out and vote for a Democrat. Uh, midterms are always a little less, um, a little, little smaller in terms of the turnout. But if we got anywhere near 545,000 votes in this election, we would win by a large margin. So. I'm running the campaign that I want to run. I'm proud uh, to be running it, and people are responding very well. And what I think gives me a chance in Mississippi is that people in Mississippi are really ready for a change. They've seen the same leadership go to Washington for the last 25 or 30 years uh, without much uh, success. We're still in 50th place in most categories uh, that we would like to be first in. And we currently have uh, my opponent is is a senator who is not – doing his job as a member of a co-equal branch of government uh, in the United States under our Constitution to act as a hedge against a president who has um, demonstrated that he's willing to do and say some things that I don't feel are appropriate. And I think the majority of Americans and the majority of Mississippians don't feel are appropriate. And, And my opponent, Roger Wicker, just stands silent. And in fact, he is nothing more than a rubber stamp for uh, this president. So that's why I think I have a good shot at winning on November 6th. So what do you think is exciting about your campaign? Number one is folks are ready for a change. I think that a lot of people sat out the 2016 presidential election, and now they're not very happy about the fact that they didn't engage in 2016. And so we see a lot of people who probably took a took an election off and who are now, you know, upset that they did so and they're very energized about making change in America this year. Uh, I think that also 
Democrats in Mississippi find it refreshing to have someone like me running an authentic campaign and not trying to to run as Republican light. And what would you do in the Senate to hold the president accountable? Well, first of all, I think it's a very easy thing to do to stand up and speak out when the president tells lies or when the president demeans uh, reporters or tax reporters or demeans folks who have disabilities uh, or demeans the uh, the, the confident and the uh, courageous rather person who comes forward and complains of sexual assault. So, so those are fairly easy things to do that any person with a platform as a United States senator can do. And then uh, the other thing that I would do as a Mississippi senator is I would oppose the president when he pushes policies that are harmful to Mississippians and harmful to the economy and, and don't serve to, to lift up and unite people around the country. Uh, now, when the president uh, proposes a policy that will benefit Mississippians and be good for Americans, then I would uh, support him on that. But uh, we need we need people who will stand up when the president's wrong and tell him that he's wrong. So I think you were alluding there, at least in part, to Brett Kavanaugh. What are your thoughts on the confirmation process there? Let, let's start with the allegation against the judge. Uh, first of all, I don't think that it was uh, too late in time. If the, uh, the the story that we heard that the letter was sent, but it was the, the uh, Dr. Blase Ford asked that it be held to protect her. If I was in the situation of the person who received the letter, I would do everything in my power to try to protect that person's uh, confidentiality as well. Because as we've seen, it has ended up destroying uh, Dr. Blase Ford's privacy and the, and the privacy of her family. Uh, then the next issue is the allegations themselves. And I think that when a woman comes forward and puts uh, as much at risk as Dr. Blase Ford put at risk, then, uh, you know, she has to be believed. Uh, now, there's been a lot of talk about the due process element and whether there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, such as would be necessary to convict someone. Well, this is not a court proceeding. And uh, Judge Kavanaugh's liberty is not at stake. It, this is simply an appointment process. And whether you believe one person over the other, th- this is a serious enough allegation. Uh, and the facts surrounding it are serious enough so that, in my view, you could say, no, thank you. We, there are plenty of other conservative justices that could be placed on the highest court in the land. And, uh, you know, this particular judge has already been appointed for life. He has a lifetime position as a federal judge. We should pass on this particular nominee and move on to the next person. And then the last thing I would comment on is the demeanor exhibited by the judge uh, in front of, uh, in his testimony before the judicial, uh, I'm sorry, the Senate Judiciary Committee. That alone would be disqualifying in my mind. Uh, His demeanor, he was ill-temperate. He, uh, you know, he was snarky. He was uh, overtly partisan. And I think that for any of those reasons, I could have easily voted no on Judge Kavanaugh's appointment. And do you believe that in the hearings he perjured himself? Uh, I don't have a belief on that either way. I haven't seen the evidence. Now, I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm a 28-year practicing attorney, and so I know what perjury means. And for me, uh, you know, you'd have to have evidence of that crime, and I don't have that evidence in front of me right now. He, he may well have, but, but I, uh, I don't have that evidence before me to make that judgment call. If you, you know, the the issue of uh, 
what certain things in the his high school yearbook meant. I mean, if that's the, if the perjury charge has to do with that, I, I'm not sure that amounts to perjury. Uh, but obviously, he interpreted some things that were written in his yearbook that other people have interpreted differently. I'm not sure that's sufficient to reach the level of perjury. So, and now that he is confirmed, and conservatives have cemented a 5-4 majority on the Supreme Court for the foreseeable future, what are the next steps? Um, What we have now is a judge whose reputation is tarnished, uh, who had some very serious allegations made against him, who the American people did not feel particularly comfortable with. And what that does is, in my mind, uh, it, it damages the court. I'm a lawyer, as I've said. I represent people that have to go before judges all the time. And I have always believed in my heart of hearts that judges put aside whatever partisan ideals that they have and they judge fairly when they put on that robe. I think that people will be less likely to believe that now because of the entire Kavanaugh debacle. Um, You know, going forward, we have to elect people. Uh, who are going to be making these appointments. And we have to uh, have fair judges throughout the entire judiciary. And, you know, when the time comes when we have a Democratic president and that president is able to make an appointment to the Supreme Court, then we hope that there are good and fair uh, justices appointed to the Supreme Court. And a big concern expressed about when Democrats do get back in power is that a conservative Supreme Court would end up striking down most of their major legislation or at least winnowing it down significantly. Is this a concern you share? Well, certainly the Republicans have evolved into something that they used to hate, and that is a party that is trying to achieve through judicial fiat that which they could not achieve at the ballot box. And, you know, I think that they are that uh, their their ideas uh, are so poor and they're incapable of passing them through the legislature that they've decided that they're going to put people on the court that will support their unpopular ideas for generations to come. Uh, so, yeah, it is a concern that any progressive measures that have been implemented over time uh, in the past or in the upcoming future, that you'll simply have a court that wants to strike them down. But but having said all of that, I mean, you know, we've been wrong before about Supreme Court justices, and, and I'm not talking about Justice Kavanaugh in particular, but there are justices who were appointed by very conservative presidents and who ended up being relatively moderate or even um, somewhat liberal while on the court. And the court is a, is a body, really, of nine people, and they play off of one another. And if Justice Kavanaugh turns out to be, uh, you know, the the Democrats' worst fear in that he is arch-conservative, then you may find that a more moderate judge moves to the left to compensate for that. I mean, that's just the nature of the court. It's a nine-person body. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer-run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com 
slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And could you tell us a little more about your immigration platform? Uh, yeah, I am for uh, permit status for the Dreamers. Uh, those are a specific group of people who we put some specific requirements on. And if they're still in the program, then they are abiding by those requirements, which means they're either in school and doing well or they have a job. They do not have uh, a green card or they're, they're not, uh, you know, don't have citizenship status and full rights of citizenship. So I would be in favor of providing that status to the Dreamers. Uh, I think that we do have a, a, a border issue and we have to address the issue, but I'm not in favor of deterring uh, illegal crossings by separating children from their families and putting them in cages. Uh, I'm against a border wall. I think it's a very 15th century uh, idea, uh, and it's backwards, and it costs way too much. We can have secure borders without building a 30-foot wall entire across the entire um, southern border of the United States. And we do that through surveillance, and we do that through uh, live personnel, and we do that through some combination of, of fencing and you know, other, uh, maybe some walls here and there. There's some that are already constructed, as I understand it. So, uh, you know, you, you save us $30 billion if you don't build that wall, and you can use that money elsewhere. Uh, we should immediately, uh, if we aren't working on it now, we should immediately reunite all children with their families, and we should never again engage in, in that kind of policy. And in terms of border safety, what would you hope to do to end the hundreds of migrant deaths that are occurring on the U.S.-Mexico border? Well, I would put that in the same category as the, um, the issue of young black males being killed by police officers. And I think that comes back to training. And, and that is uh, it's tragic, but a lot of times officers... Uh, whether they be police officers or border patrol officers, escalate a situation rather than diffusing the situation. And I think, you know, there are occasions when you can't de-escalate a situation and, and you have to use force. But I would, would I'd venture to guess that in the largest and overwhelming majority of situations where someone ends up getting shot or perhaps killed, that the situation could have been de-escalated if the officer using the force was properly trained. Uh, so, so that's the approach that I would take. And do you have thoughts on the militarization of the border, as well as since you're bringing up the police, local police forces? Yeah, I think that uh, militarization is escalation, and I, I don't find it necessary except in the most extreme situations. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not certainly not an open borders guy because I believe that countries have to have borders, and there ought to be an orderly process for uh, immigrating. 
But, uh, you know, I don't think that we need to have a, as I said before, a 15th century solution like a castle wall with boiling oil or archers or machine gun turrets uh, guarding our southern border. I think we can do that more effectively and uh, more efficiently without having a militarized police force at the border. So I'd like to go back to the Supreme Court case that actually kicked this process off as a lawyer. You might be familiar with Fong Yuting, which is all the way back in 1892. The case regarded the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in Fong Yuting, which is in regards to deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forced taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? I think so. I'm trying to follow you. I I would prefer to read that passage and and think about it, but it it sounds like something that I would agree with. I mean, the concept that it is punishment to be deprived of your land and sent across the ocean, uh, I certainly agree with that. And just to go back to what you said about the process going through it, you clearly understand how broken and difficult that system is to get citizenship, how overcomplicated and difficult to understand the bureaucracy is. Do you think the answer is to simplify and streamline this? And if so, how? Well, I'm not an expert on immigration law. Okay, and you've just about tapped my reservoir of knowledge. But but let me say this. I think that this is a big, complex and convoluted issue that Congress has got to tackle. We should have tackled it 20 years ago. And I don't I don't blame any particular party. I think they're both to blame for not dealing with this issue before. This is the type of big issue that is going to require a bipartisan approach. People have to be able to sit down around a table and talk about of what they can agree on. And what they can't agree on, they can move aside for the time being. But I think that if people would sit down and talk to one another, we probably have agreement on about 70 or 80 percent of all immigration issues. And we should go ahead and tackle that 70 or 80 percent and try to streamline the process, make it more clear and understandable, uh, and, and so that everybody uh, feels like it is a fairer process. Uh, and, and so the American people feel like their Congress has addressed this big issue because clearly lots and lots and lots of people, even those who aren't immigrants themselves, have concerns about this. So you've you've touched upon this a bit. I'm curious as to what you would like to do as a United States senator to address racial justice and fight the racial inequities we see in our society. Well, I believe in fairness and equality for all under the law. And and I mean everybody. I mean man, woman, white, black, uh you know, LG, gay straight, uh, old, young, as a trial lawyer for 28 years, I've represented a lot of people in civil rights cases. And, and you know, I've represented women who were deprived jobs or promotion because of their gender. I've represented men who were fired because of their age. I've represented African-Americans who were passed over because of their race. I've represented uh, Egyptian Muslims who uh, were denied promotion because of their uh, nationality and their um, and their religion. 
So I've seen it all, and I believe that everybody deserves equality under the law. So, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of enforcement mechanisms, I, I think they could be tightened up. I think that we could probably go back into the um, the 19, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act and probably tighten it up a bit, too. But the, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I believe a person serving in the United States Senate with a statewide platform can do is to change the narrative and talk in a way so that folks feel like they're being heard and they're being welcomed in this state that I live in and in this country uh, that I live in. And the other thing that you can do as a United States senator is you can stand up and you can tell the president when he uses language that is offensive and demeaning. So those are the things that I can tell you that I would move on very, very quickly in terms of um, how we address civil rights issues in this country. And how would you hope to address racism in the criminal justice system? Well, we can uh, end private uh, for-profit prisons, which feed on human bodies, largely uh, those of African-American males. We can have a judiciary that's more reflective of the litigants that appear before the judiciary. Uh, We can uh, beef up the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, so that cases can be processed uh, more quickly and there are more agents who can handle those cases. And those are just three examples. And, you know, this is an issue that is very personal to me because I have a biracial child. And so I want to make sure that he never ends up before a judge, but that if he does, that he feels like that judge is going to be fair and that the system that he's involved in is going to treat him no differently than it would treat a white male. So looking specifically at your state, the Mississippi Administrative Office of Courts found that 61% of the convicted population who cannot vote is African American, while overall the percent of voting age African Americans is only 30% of the overall Mississippi population. What are your thoughts on this? I think what you're referring to is uh, disenfranchising crimes, and that's an issue that I've worked on. And in our Constitution, which was passed post Reconstruction in 1894 or 98, I can't remember, there, there are a lot of provisions that are born out of racism and out of an attempt of a white supremacist to uh, enforce their superiority over the, the black race. And one of those things is the disenfranchising crimes provision. Uh, and so we have worked on that in the Mississippi legislature. I was uh, the person who actually handled the bill back in 2010 that uh, resulted in four or five of those crimes being removed. So we, we reduced that list and it needs to be reduced further. And do you think that after people convicted of a felony serve their sentence, they should have the right to vote given back to them or if they should even be stripped of it in the first place? Well, I think both. I mean, there are some crimes that I could agree with. You probably ought to be stripped of your right to vote, but it's a very, very small number. Uh, And then if a person completes their sentence, they they have uh, done everything that the civil, uh, I'm sorry, the criminal justice system has asked them to do then certainly uh, they should be, their, their rights should be reinstated. And the process for doing that now is, is very, very tedious and not too many people ever get to take advantage of it. You have to petition for suffrage, restoration of suffrage, and then you have to have a legislator file a bill. That bill has to make its way through the process and uh, then be signed by the governor. And it, it just rarely ever happens. We may have three or four that get passed every year. And obviously that's an inadequate uh, percentage when you look at the number of people who have 
uh, been disenfranchised. And what are your thoughts on the state of voting rights overall right now, especially given that 2016 was the first election held without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act? I I didn't agree with the decision that struck down a part of the Voting Rights Act, first of all. I think the Voting Rights Act is important. All of its provisions are important. Uh, I think that there are, uh, you know, you got a patchwork quilt of laws that require uh, identification in some form or the other. In some states, it's not quite so burdensome. In other states, it's extremely burdensome. And we've had courts that found that they are attempting to disenfranchise folks. There are uh, there are other barriers to voting, such as in Mississippi, we have one day and you got to be in line by 7 o'clock or you, 7 p.m. or you can't vote. Uh, we should have early voting. We should have Saturday voting. Uh, we should have, we should make it uh, easier to register to vote, and we should make it as easy as possible for folks who want to exercise their right and their duty to vote to get to a polling place and be able to cast a vote. And lastly, what can folks do to get involved in your campaign, and where can they find you online? Uh, well, I'm online at barriaformississippi.com. I'm on Facebook. My name is David Beria, B-A-R-I-A. I'm on Twitter at D Beria, D-B-A-R-I-A. We're on um, Instagram. You know, I encourage folks if they if they're in this area and they want to help in Mississippi to pick up the phone and call us at 769-208-8387. Come by our office at 555 Tom Bigby uh, Street, Suite 100. Email us at info at barriaformississippi.com. We have people currently doing phone banking, virtual phone banking. Uh, writing postcards. We we were uh, canvassing, you know, and you can do something as simple as liking and sharing our social media posts to expand our message. Uh, we, we also have a texting program. I think it's called Hustle. Uh, some of your folks may have heard of it. So we, we have lots of different ways for folks to get involved, and I certainly hope that some will. Yes, me too. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And we hope to speak with you again after you are elected senator. Well, that I will certainly make time to do that after I'm elected, but I'm going to take November 7th off and just sleep late. Appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Of course. Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.